runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 121 with guest Andrew Hader, recorded Monday, July 13th, 2009. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. You're listening to Run As Radio. I am your host, Richard Campbell. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, Richard. And this is a show that you organized, buddy. Yeah. Well, you know, we got to throw the little security-related thing in every now and then. Oh, I got to get enough security love. No two ways about it. And that's your thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, the IT world more and more and more is taking on different security. uh, You can think of it as tasks, but really it's becoming much more of a strategic approach, not not so much of a, you know, tactical dotting I's and crossing T's, but real responsibility that you really have to think about all the time. Absolutely. And and it's becoming more and more significant as we go along. All right, Greg. Well, let's introduce our guest. Andrew Hader is the anti-malcode program manager for the ICSA Labs. Good morning, Rich and Greg. How are you doing today? Nice to meet you. And uh, I'm not familiar with ICSA Labs, so why don't we start there? Who are you guys? Who are we? We ICSA Labs is a independent third-party organization that does testing and validation of security products for uh, most of the security industry around the world. Uh, we have been in business for over 20 years and have taken many uh, uh, adjustments along the way and growth adjustments, both from our name, which some may recognize early on as NCSA Labs, to a change of our name to International Computer Security Association, and then finally to ICSA Labs. Uh, And I'll just mention for uh, the record that ICSA Labs today is an independent division of Horizon Business, and that keyword there is independent. We work and act independently of of our parent company uh, and, and can demonstrate that to anybody who's uh, looking at our tests or results or would like to work with us. Uh, again, we work with all the major and and all the security vendors, not even the major security vendors, all the security vendors around the world in many different areas. My focus is on anti-malcode products, but in addition to anti-malcode products, we also provide validation and testing for everything from firewalls, web app firewalls, PC firewalls, uh, network IPS solutions, uh, SSL VPNs, VPNs, IPsec VPNs, uh, you name it, we do the validation for it, including FIPS 140-2 testing and a few other types of security types of testing. All our information can be found pretty easily at www.icsalabs.com. Uh, that's the, the quick 30-second approach to ICSA Labs. If you're the independent neutral third party that sort of can let people like us know, you know, what what is the actual current state of affairs when it comes to anti-malware software or firewalls or what have you? Cor- correct. And the way we go about that is, and, and the, this is the model we use with all the different testing programs at ICSA Labs, is we are been based on a consortium model since the very beginning. And 
1989. The consortium model means we work with vendors. We, we create a consortium of vendors in the particular technology area, and we meet with those vendors. Today, we meet three to four times a year, depending on the consortium, and we talk about the industry, the programs, the products, and the problems, and how best to test the products to validate and demonstrate to the consumer, the end user consumer in a corporate environment, the corporate procurement department, uh, the CIO, CISO, or in a lot of the anti-malware case, the home computer user, uh, what what's the right criteria to select to, to demonstrate that the product performs its function and does the basic uh, function that it's designed to do. So we meet with the consortium, we develop criteria, and those criteria have been developing over many years. So they, they greatly expand and evolve as time goes on. So the anti-malware criteria or antivirus criteria started way back. Our first consortium meeting together was in 1991 when we did our first testing. We set the criteria and then eventually make the criteria working with the vendors a little bit more challenging and a little raise the bar higher and higher through each iteration of our criteria. Yeah. Antivirus is a very mature area right now, but some of the other areas that are new, such as SSL VPN or network IPS or anti-spam, they're relatively new programs, and the criteria is under development and in, and going through that growth stage where working with the vendors, we determine the bar to set and where we're going to start raising that bar over time. In the antivirus community, what we do is we measure uh, uh, multiple criteria for each one of the products we, we test, and we test a variety of different antivirus products. Many people think there's just antivirus and you see it on a store shelf or you see it on a flyer on a weekend newspaper, but there's actually a variety of antivirus products that we test depending on your environment, be it a single user or corporate environment. So we have desktop server antivirus products, which most people are familiar with, but we also can test for things such as a gateway antivirus product, which is on a mail gateway. We can do groupware products, so that would be uh, an environment that works with uh, Lotus Domino uh, servers and mail or Microsoft Exchange mail. We have enterprise content management, so that's like in a SharePoint environment. We also can test AAV products in managed services email or just a managed service or an online product and a few others as well. So there's generally multiple criteria that uh, we use for different types of products within the AV, with the, the blanket of AV coverage. It seems to me like in the past few years, this whole malware business has gotten way more serious. Like it's not... It's not kids letting worms get out into the wild by accident anymore. It's very much a business of exploiting machines for fun and profit. Crime for profit, for sure. Yeah, malware for profit. Uh, it's still sometimes kids. That's one thing that's changed. It has been as young as, I think, their recent arrest in a uh, uh, European country-based uh, anti-mal, uh, rather malware group was a 15-year-old who right. was doing all the bad stuff. So it's not just kids, and you're right, it's not for fun anymore. If you look back at the origins of computer malware, mainly viruses back in the early days, a lot of it was written because people basically had not a lot to do with their time. A lot of it was written, and this is you know, fairly well researched in Eastern European countries, where there, the schools were great, the technology in the schools that people were being taught was great, but there wasn't an, out, uh, a, an employment outlet for them. Uh, and what do I do with my spare time? Well, let me try doing this. It's a proof of concept. I'd write something to see if I can do it. Sometimes yeah. they do those things and they get break free. Or I'd write something and let it go just to see what kind of fun it would have. 
Um, and they weren't too damaging early on. A lot of the viruses just had a, a message inside them or uh, were sometimes politically motivated to deliver a message. But uh, as time went on, it uh, developed into a more serious business where people found they could uh, make money yeah, writing malware. And I think that's the biggest problem we have today is, is let's call it crimeware, uh, where it's malware for profit, where there's organizations out there that are making just as much money. Uh, it's organized crime making just as much money in some instances through malware as they would be trafficking drugs or other uh, illegal substances or, or illegal things. And that could be a very big problem. So you do have a, a malware for profit, and you can do this um, anywhere, anytime, because it's based on working through the Internet, and you can buy uh, in the, the original good old days. You really had to be a very good programmer at the assembly level to be able to write a piece of malware. Today, you can buy a toolkit. Right. Yeah, just right. A, a fourth generation language toolkit, throw in a couple of things you want to do, and it creates a Trojan, it creates a piece of malware for you. So it's becoming very easy for anyone to go out there and, and do bad things. And it's the commoditization of malware. Correct. <laughs> malware has become much, much more complicated over time, too. I mean, what are the things that IT professionals operating in the real world really need to be thinking about now? And, uh, you know, another thing that terms that we sometimes hear, but people don't always have a clear definition of it, are things like uh, metamorphic or polymorphic malware. Maybe you could explain what those things are and try to try to put some some thought around, you know, what is the sure. current state of affairs? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, a variety of types of, of, when you're talking metamorphic and polymorphic, you're traditionally talking about um, viruses. But uh, the, basically, a metamorphic is one that can take many different forms, and it can change form during its evolution. Um, or, or today, there's another term. Uh, we'll have to repeat this, because there's another term I just got to think of for a second for um, uh, oh, I thought of it the other day. We'll come back to it. But anyway, uh, metamorphic viruses or, or metamorphic malware are those that can take many different forms when they are uh, distributed and on your system. Uh, you don't see as many of the what traditionally was known as metamorphic um, viruses anymore, but you do see quite a number of polymorphic viruses. A polymorphic virus is one that can take many forms. And when it infects your system, it'll infect it uh, multiple times, and every time it's a different image of the virus, a different piece of virus, and it changes its form, as says polymorphic. It changes its form every time. So there's no itself. one signature that can be used to do the detection of that. Yeah, this is really uh, exploiting a weakness in antivirus software that depends on these signatures to identify. Well, the, uh... polymorphic viruses have been around since the dawn of man in the AV industry. It's not something that's going to be, uh, is not terribly difficult for the highly qualified antivirus developer to work on. And the and the antivirus engines are very good now at looking at a polymorphic sample and then being able to iterate out 2,000 varieties of it to be able to find it on a computer. Um, so the better antivirus developers out there don't have much trouble at all with the polymorphic uh, pro samples at all. They can handle it fairly well. Uh, and that's something we do test for in our environment is to test to make sure that the vendor's product cannot just detect the original sample of the polymorphic, but will replicate it out numerous times and make sure they can detect the replicant. And that, that can demonstrate the strength of an AV vendor's research community where they can detect the multiple iterations of a polymorphic sample.
I'm I'm an IT guy, right? And, and I deal with security stuff. What what are the things that I need to be doing, or what are the things that I need to be thinking about today that are maybe different than than what I had to be concerned with, you know, two or three years ago? When it comes to when it comes to anti malware or combating malware and protecting maybe a business. I, th- I think from the professional perspective, if you're an information security professional and you're building your environment for your corporation, uh, you have to just keep in mind uh, everything old is new again in some respects, and you cannot get rid of the older technologies or older types of implementations that you've had. You still need to put in a desktop anti-malware product on your computer. Uh, and you need to keep that product up to date. I mean, we can start at the desktop working backwards. Uh, part of that, part of that deployment of a desktop antivirus product also requires end user education. End user education, not only on, on the fact that I have this anti-malware product I'm on my computer, it may at some point in time tell me something bad's going on, but also educating your end users on what not to do, what where not to go, what not to click on. A lot of the problems that you have, both in, in, in every type of environment, is people and users clicking on attachments or clicking on links within whatever mail, email, or web page they go to and getting infected. And that's, that could be a big problem. So there has to be a lot of education on the end user side, and that goes in the corporate environment and the, the non-corporate environment on what behaviors to not do or to avoid when working with uh, anything in technology these days. Working your way back from that, you have to protect your servers. Your servers could be your mail gateway servers, whatever it might be that sent that is connecting uh, everybody together. They also need a layer of anti-malware protection. Uh, step back further, the gateway coming into the company should have anti-malware protection. Of course, you're going to have other types of protection on these things as well. You're going to have intrusion protection, and there's going to be all sorts of other uh, security uh, f- protocols built in, but we have to work with all these protocols simultaneously. You just can't turn on one hoping it's going to catch everything. So as you go back through your corporation, you go up the food chain, everything can be protected. And uh, these days, you know, we used to, I think as we call it defense in depth, you still need to implement defense in depth from a malware perspective because some malware can make it through certain levels of your defenses and it'll get caught on the desktop. Or it may get caught at the gateway and never make it to the desktop. Uh, so you really have to be very cautious about it. You really have to have an educated community within your user base to be able to protect that. Uh, I kind of go back, and, and, and you can cut this later, but um, I always talk about there's a, a clothing firm that's in the Northeast. I don't know how far across the country they go called Sims. And one of their big, uh, their big commercial is, uh, with Sims, an educated consumer is our best customer. And I firmly believe an educated user, when it comes to security, is your best user out there. They know what to do, when to do it, and what not to do. And I think that's the right approach is, is you can put all the implementation and all the products in place that you want, but you have to educate the users on what to use, when to use, and how to use, and when to call someone up and say, hey, I have a problem. Uh, there's a lot of configurability and administrative interfaces these days with most of the larger products that, that does send messages through to uh, your network help desk, your your NOC, or wherever it might be, to let people know there's a problem. And you have to implement all those levels of security. You just You just can't get around it these days. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a school of thought that there are no technology problems. There really are only people problems, and technology is just a way, a set of tools that you can use in the in the process of solving your people problems, right? In in most cases with malware, I'd say quite a number of them can be solved because they're people problems. However, you do have other types of exploits that generate malware, such as cross-site scripting exploits right. that have been uh, all over the all over the news pages recently where, you know, it's not necessarily something you can control, um, but you can control linking, clicking on links that you're not sure of, and then you have drive-by malware. And, you know, that's another type of problem where you're just not going to know, but it usually on sites that in a business environment, you as a as a user in a business environment are not typically should be should be or can be visiting during the day. So sure. that could eliminate a lot of the issues um, in businesses. Um, it, it all depends on your, your protocols and controls. We've had to work with some businesses that are completely locked down tight and you can't go anywhere from within the business to the internet. Uh, just very right. specific internet sites are very, very limited, uh, and highly controlled. So there's lots of things you can do up front to take advantage of this. So once again, it's really about the balance, right? Balance your people, your people controls and your process controls and your technology controls and leverage them together build that defense in depth of that layer security model. It's really the same story, whether it's malware or or software development or infrastructure or what have you. Yeah, and I think you have to take a, ba- you know, a balanced approach. You don't have to be so restrictive that the PC basically doesn't do anything all day but looking for viruses. That can be a terribly uh, non-productive environment. It also right. might push the end user those that, that want to do it could go in and disable some of the anti-malware protection too. So you have to find, strike that balance between uh, performance and protection. No, letting everybody, again, educating everybody to know that that performance hit that may be taken on your machine in some instances uh, is, is the protection and it needs to be there to safeguard what you're doing. And then uh, all the other standard business practices of backing up information, backing up your desktop, backing up your servers, backing up all your information so that should you get uh, attacked by anything, you do have and retain a clean copy of your work. Again, nothing's changed when it comes to normal security and, and standards like that. But, you know, being a little bit more diligent about how you do it and when you educate people and keeping them in the loop is, is of prime importance. So we finding that most of the infection vectors these days are, are are social engineering vectors that it's the you know leaving USB keys in the uh, parking lot kind of stuff or click on this rather than the direct infection vac- vectors what we'd more call hacking. Well, uh, I would say that you can break it up into a couple of things. There's hacking, there's targeted attacks, and then there's social engineering. Uh, hacking um, is something that the typical end user can't control, but those in who have oversight over systems and development and websites and applications certainly can set their programs up for better standards and do security, uh, take security in mind when they're developing their applications so they couldn't be hacked. Certainly those putting up web servers, corporate web servers and corporate web pages, there are plenty of, plenty of information on how to develop a web page website so that it, it can't be hacked. And I think a lot of those considerations have to be considered. Uh, and, and that's, you know, there's, there's nothing new there. There's doc, plenty of documentation to help you from that. Uh, so, you know, the hacking's gonna happen. Um, you've got the web pages that, you know, you need to just set things up properly. And, uh, the social engineering part, well, I, that's, again, a learned, a learned behavior. Right. Um, you have leaving the USB key in the 
in the um, in the drive. Uh, a very very easy thing to fix, and that's turn off auto turn off auto run. Right. I mean, that's that's been going on for a long time. You can turn off auto run. If you think way 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 back in the days when they had these things called diskettes, let alone floppy drives. One of the features, and it's still in some of the antivirus products you see today, is to is to do a scan of the heart of the removable media on mm-hmm. shutdown, and that was very important for diskette drives because you could boot from a diskette drive. So one of the vectors you used to have was you'd have a, a diskette in your machine that was infected, but it hadn't executed yet. So you shut down your machine, and the next time you turned it on, of course, it would try to boot from the diskette drive first. The diskette right. drive. Uh, was bootable, it would have an infection on it, and that infection would spread. So the thought was, let's do a shutdown scanner. And you'd look at the diskette drive as you shut down. Therefore, you'd know right away if I left something in the drive. Uh, you can disable auto run. And um, that's well documented on how to do that. And it's a little bit more complex than just going in and, and tweaking a setting to set off, turn off auto run. There's lots of components to auto run that are very well documented. I believe in the, in the case of the Microsoft operating systems, they have very, very well documented all the different iterations of auto run and how to work within the registry to turn those things off. And as a corporate policy, you could set that policy and push that out. Uh, to all your end users to set it up the way you would like it to be set up. So you have those things. But then there's, you know, let's look at one more aspect of social engineering, clicking on things that I shouldn't be clicking on, responding to emails uh, and blind blind links that I don't know what they are, working with Twitter. Um, one of the one of the, the issues that you'll find with the vulnerabilities or the, the problems that Twitter has had recently are the use of URL shortening tools. I think the first one that happened around Easter was it was a bit.ly uh, a bit.ly URL, and bit.ly basically takes a great big long URL that's hard to remember, and it takes a lot of space. But Twitter remembers 140 characters and shrinks it down to this little thing, and then you can click on it. But you don't inherently, by looking at the bit.ly uh, URL, know where you're going. So people clicked on this bit.ly URL from people they thought they can trust, and voila, they were infected with a cross-site scripting. Um, Vulnerability, which downloaded malware. Right. It's a it's a learning process. Uh, we go back, and, and you mentioned Auto Run. You look at Configure. Now, one of the things that's very very important to for everybody to know, and this is the the IT professionals, is update, update, update. Automatic updates should be turned on. You should be applying the updates. Whenever Patch Tuesday comes around, you should really, really evaluate the updates that come out on Patch Tuesday and apply them as soon as physically possible to all your end users. Now, if you look at the Conficker worm, the, the vulnerability that Conficker took advantage of was patched by Microsoft more than a month prior to the, avail- the, the first um, outbreaks or the first views of Conficker. So had everybody apply the patch in a timely fashion, Conficker should not have done anything because it, the hole was fixed. Yet we see that there were hundreds of thousands or if not millions of machines infected outside uh, the normal world by Conficker. And when you look at the statistics for Conficker, a lot of that was copies of Microsoft operating systems that were, were bootlegged. They were not legal copies. Therefore, they didn't have automatic updates going on them all the time. So when, you know, a lot of this is preventable. Conficker pretty much, for my opinion, was preventable had you performed all your updates, had you had a legal copy of uh, the Windows operating system, would have prevented Conficker. Uh, so, you know, there's just do everything right, and you should pretty much, you know, stay clean most of the time. Uh, that's not a hard thing to do, but 
you know, there are, we've talked to several companies that just have old servers and they're just running older operating systems or they haven't updated in quite a long time and they want to know, well, how can they, you know, they've got a problem. What can they, what is this problem? What to do about it? We say, update your servers. This would have been protected. And it's not always easy to go back to something that should have been updated a year ago and get it into the process and admit that I missed the server and up, I needed to update it. Um, so, you know, be honest with yourself, be honest with your company and say, I got to update everything or else we're going to have big problems. Yeah, no kidding. And, of course, people are hesitant on patching because patching has its own consequences. It's almost as if we should have a separate stream for this. But this brings up a sort of core conversation, which is this whole uh, zero infection day battle. You know, when it, when this thing first comes out and, and you're sort of a race to get the signatures in place and, and battle things back versus the these are known viruses. They're spreading by slower vectors uh, and we have time to do the updates. Uh, how are we doing here? I'm just trying to get a sense from your perspective of you know where those battles lie. The zero day uh, threats, um, from my perspective, even though they can be a serious threat, they're generally not a threat that's very uh, that has a large target base initially. And I think there's been enough in the press that typically there's a fast enough reaction from the operating system vendors or browser vendors and a very rapid reaction from the antivirus malware developers or anti-malware developers to update their products. And with the changes in the nature of the anti-malware products going from a signature-based to a heuristic-based type of environment to a dynamic-based type of environment, a lot of these threats can be caught fairly uh, immediately. Now, that could be hours or days but this is not something that I think the zero day threats are going to are going to hurt um, too many too many people anymore because they're typically taking advantage of more of the the really obscure vulnerabilities that exist and not everybody's going to be attacking the more obscure ones because the the more obvious ones have been patched up and covered already and I right. think there's a whole lot more due diligence going on right now in preventing those any kind of vulnerability up front. Uh, however. You know, that, that, that condition still exists. So you need to think about that at the same time. But again, keep it up, keep it passionate. You should be fairly, fairly good with this. It seems to me we have a good engine around that, that the thing that we, that we need to pay attention to is the social engineering side, getting our users aware of the things they're doing routinely that are creating infections. Correct. Uh, you can't say enough about the social engineering fact. I think, uh, I haven't seen statistics in the corporate environment. In the home user environment, it's rampant. Um, I mean, you could in a corporate environment, you can probably control things a little bit better by not permitting things like Twitter or Facebook from occurring during the the, uh, the business hours or on business equipment. Certainly, policy has a lot to do with that, and that's again part of the education corporate policy that says you know you don't do these things on these machines. It's business. It's corporate policy. It's terms of employment. Um, that's another possibility as well. I think one possibility is often overlooked, and it depends on the companies, the size of the company, things like that, is if you know your users are doing a lot of work at home and on, on their own machines by accessing corporate systems remotely, and you know if you're using VPNs and, and other methodologies, that's great for security, but why not offer your home users the same anti-malware protection that you have on your desktop so at least you know they're using something and they're not 
risking your corporate assets in another way or bringing something in that might be infected. Um, because not everybody at home is going to be using the most up-to-date and latest piece of, of anti-malware products. They may use what was shipped with the PC and, and not choosing to sign a subscription to get it updated. So they're having out-of-date software. So maybe another policy could be, you know, for all my home users, here's a copy of what we use at work. Yeah, it may cost me something, but how much of a savings will I have by letting, by giving people at work the option to use a product I know is current and updated? So that's another uh, opportunity for people to to protect their systems further. And I'm, I'm going to try and stay away from product names, but I know that uh, that there are vendors out there that have built products so that when you attempt to connect to the business network, it interrogates your machine fairly severely. They, they, the uh, and make sure that and insists on certain level of uh, of patching and and uh, security before you're able to access those business resources in the first place. Right. There are products out there that do that. They're not the, believe it or not, they're not the AV products, the anti-malware products themselves all the time. There are other third-party utilities that offer that service and that, conf- that level of configuration and profile to validate before you uh, connect to the system that you have all the right, the right levels of patches and operating systems and latest signature updates. You see that a lot in SSL VPN type environment yeah. as well, where, where you're, you're doing it in that environment. Um, and there are products out there that work that way. And I do think that the USB key thing is is a huge problem that folks are going from are infecting their key at home and then taking it to the office. It's exactly what happened 15 years ago in the anti in the antivirus world. People were working at it's when you didn't have a machine at home, but you were allowed to do work at home, right? Or you'd work on a you know a spreadsheet at home, and you'd you know, be cranking on the spreadsheet and needless. Uh, unknown to you, someone had been on the computer ahead of time and brought a game in. Their, their kid got from school, and that game was infected. Then infected the diskette that you saved your spreadsheet to, and right. then you put it in your, your computer at work, and you infected your computer at work and all your colleagues and things like that. It's no different. I mean, it's just another form of portable media is uh, the the uh, flash drive. And again, you can prevent it with auto run. You can prevent it with automatically scanning and when it's put in. You, there's lots of ways to prevent it. It's just you got to do it. And sometimes it takes a little extra effort. But uh, how much is you know you got to evaluate the price of security and 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 go from there. I think one other point that I, I just remembered now we want to cover too is what are called targeted attacks. Because right. we talked about zero day attacks. We talked about social engineering and every use like that. But I think we have to think about targeted attacks too. Targeted attacks are looking to take advantage of one company or one region of the world, and they're a little bit, little bit more difficult, especially if they're a zero-day type of attack to deal with, because not everybody's going to be seeing this attack, and not everybody is going to have the information about it. But a targeted attack can go be going after one company's assets, finding a vulnerability in that company, and then just going in there in a zero-day fashion and just collaborating the company and doing as much damage as it can in one day. And usually they're all, you know, in and out in one day or one a couple of hours and they're over with. And and so you have to be aware of target attacks either targeted to a company or targeted to a region of the world. Uh and and they could be a little bit more precarious and a little bit more difficult to 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 weed out. Or a large company that is operating in different parts of the world might only have this target attack in one part of the world and then because they're interconnected on a corporate network it could spread even though it wasn't intended for other geographies, it could spread that way. Absolutely. Or again, if, if this is an engineered attack, if your company is being 
attack that way. They go after a branch office that is sort of the weak link, but given the control of the permissions there, now have access to the entire infrastructure. Right, right. I've seen, um, I think, one of the important things for IT professionals uh, on the security side to uh, instill in their other uh, organizations is when you start putting a lot of devices out remotely that you do configure the device and do change the default passwords and user IDs. And frequently I've seen that condition exist where the, you know, the whole company got infected because a remote site or a branch site had wide open uh, user ID and passwords. They never changed them from the defaults and that's an easy way in. And and most people going out there trying to hack, that's one of the first things they're going to try is sure. am I using the default password and user ID? Uh, and non uh, unsecured Wi-Fi nodes in branch offices. Yep, it doesn't have to have to be a Wi-Fi node, but yeah, that'll work too. Yeah, same sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, an open Wi-Fi node, and you're going to be a little bit doing more war driving and driving past and sitting in a parking lot. But uh, you know, there have been some very well-known hacks that have cost companies a whole lot of money, billions of dollars, because of someone sitting in a parking lot with a mobile uh, device snooping in and collecting information. Yeah. So, you know, collect your information, or if you're going to be collecting information outside of the antivirus, you know, you have to do it a secure fashion. You have to encrypt the information, and then you get into the whole thing with, if you're dealing with credit cards, with implementing the right PCI uh, 1.2 levels of protection and doing your audits, doing due diligence in your audits to demonstrate that, you know, the products you're using and your implementation meets the criteria within PCI. 1.2 for uh, credit card transactions. I think PCI is a whole show unto itself. I think it's a great topic, certainly a standard that I've had to work with in the past. Right. And if you look at the latest PCI 1.2, Section 5 is all about antivirus. Um, so that's a whole nother, you're right, it's a whole nother discussion. But when you start, you know, in the corporate environment, putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, it seems like a whole lot of work, but it's there for protection of, of your data, your company assets, and your customers' assets. We're almost hitting to the point where we start to talk about the cyber warfare angles of this. When you start talking about targeted attacks in regions and so forth, and I'm thinking about the recent incidents around the country of Georgia, where there was a concerted effort to disrupt the entire Internet for that country. Uh, and malware could certainly be a part of that attack. Yeah, uh, that was two years ago almost now. Last that, year, yeah. Last year, yeah, the George attack in Georgia. Prior to that, you had Estonia, mm -hmm. where that was thought to be the first real uh, cyber war. Um, and then Georgia, and then in the past week, you've had a series of attacks in South Korea and the U.S. that have been targeted attacks. Um, what I think you have to consider is there's a whole lot more of this going on than, than meets the public eye yes. all the time. I think this is this type of environment of attacks has been around longer than the public seems to be aware or or uh, things like that. And again, they're targeted, they're political in nature, and uh, how can you prevent them? It's, it's an awfully tough question. Um, when you look at the attack this week in uh, Korea, and in South Korea and in the U.S., there's still a lot of uh, debate and a lot of evidence to be collected out there to determine exactly how this got into so many systems in South Korea and, and what was the mechanism, what was the access mechanism to get into just so many systems. And that's still, as of last Friday, when I, I pulled some recent papers on this, um, there's no good information on how this DDoS attack started and, and how the malware is the botnet 
uh, how a botnet got so spread out into Korea that went undetected and then triggered itself and did massive DDoS attacks on many, many, many uh, uh, URLs that were out there or domains. So these things are going to continue to happen, and, and hopefully the governments, with the U.S. government, you know, looking at cyber threats a whole lot more seriously now, uh, and many other governments looking at it from their own government perspective. But I know there's a tremendous amount of international cooperation on cyber threats and sharing uh, intelligence and sharing technical information that uh, it should, uh, over time, be a lot better to manage and understand and see these things coming before they actually occur. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem, Rich and Greg. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to let people know about uh, what's the latest in the world of, of anti-malware. And my final thought would be, uh, you know, if you're evaluating your anti-malware or any other security solutions, is to take a look at what ICSA Labs uh, offers in the form of lab reports to, to get, get that third-party validation and and testing information about the security products you're choosing. So that's www.icsalabs.com. That's correct. That's our website. And, uh, uh, you know, get the, get the reports and get the latest information on which products are certified. Andy, thanks a lot. You're welcome. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 